Hello and welcome back to another special interview show from Seton Hall University. This is The Global Current. I'm Juliana Mori, your interview host and an associate producer of this podcast. Today, I'm excited to interview Professor Simon Chadwick, a professor of sport and geopolitical economy at Schema Business School in Paris. He has more than 25 years of experience with researching and writing about sports and their contribution to the geopolitical economy. Also, he has taught at multiple university centers and is an overall specialist in global political economy and athletics. So if you could introduce yourself in a few words, that would be great. Uh, I think you've probably introduced me a bit in about as uh, a good a fashion as possible. Yeah, I'm a business school guy. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a political scientist. I was a sports fan when I was younger. Now I tend to be much less of a fan and, and more of a, an observer. Historically, my, my big sport has been soccer, but my secret passion is, uh, is motorsport. And this is this is something that I followed a lot since I was a kid. So the opportunity that I now have, particularly in this podcast, to 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 kind of talk about business and economics, but also politics and Formula One and motor racing and Gulf Nations, where I spent a lot of time working. Thank you for inviting me to 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 do this. Of course, of course. So my understanding is that your original interest in Formula One sparked from your father when you got into the sport in the 70s and with the addition of like more interconnected word and you really sparked the term netflixiation of formula one how have you seen the motorsport scene change throughout the years my goodness you've done your homework um (laughs) so yes back in the 1970s my my father went to buy his first ever brand new car and uh, and I remember going to the car dealership and thinking, wow, this is really interesting. And and that's where my um, my interest in motorsport came from. Mm-hmm. And this currently is something that I'm still still interested in, still working on. So I'm currently talking to Formula Electric about about a project that we we we're going to work on together. In the intervening periods. I remember going to to my first Formula One event in the late 1970s, and it was. It was almost like a club racing mentality, which is privately owned teams with drivers who very often brought their own money with them and you know, helped to fund the team. The sponsors typically were companies and brands you'd never heard of because they'd come with the, they'd come with the team. Obviously, the technology was very different. The rules were very different. A lot of the races, and, and, and for that matter, a lot of the drivers were typically from the global north i mean you go back to the 1970s obviously there was a japanese grand prix but but there wasn't a south korean grand prix there wasn't a singapore grand prix nobody would have would have imagined in the 70s 80s and possibly even the 90s that a race would eventually go to qatar because if i if i remember back to when i was a kid and then when i when i was a student most people in the world had not even heard of qatar and so i think what we see now in in the sport is a very different set of teams with a very different set of sponsors racing in a series that is staged in very different places in very different ways you talked about the netflixization of motorsport for example um, but the other one of the other details to keep in mind is when i was a kid 
the 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 president of the FIA, the global global governing body of motorsport, was a Frenchman. Um, mm -hmm. Now, somebody from the United Arab Emirates is uh, is a president of the FIA, the FIA's first non-European president in in its entire history. So there are still cars, there are still four wheels, there are still drivers, there are still far too few women involved. Um, but otherwise, a lot of other things have uh, have changed. So have you seen anything specifically geopolitically? I know you talked about how we never really thought of a race being in like Qatar happening, but have you seen that change due to the popularity of the sport? Or would you say it's more almost economically driven? The, I mean, there's no doubt in some territories, and I'm thinking specifically here of, for example, Saudi Arabia, there has always been, because of, of Saudi Arabia's oil and gas wealth, an interest in fast cars. And, and that interest in Saudi Arabia in fast cars is, is still there. But obviously the way in which the world has changed over the last 30 years, and we've seen this pivot from global north to global south, where the economic and political power of nations such as China, India, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, which are all now F1 Grand Prix hosts, this has this has changed dramatically over that period. And and I guess you know, in, in, in kind of broad terms, when we think about United Arab Emirates, we think about Bahrain, we think about Qatar, there is almost a, a notion of post-colonialism because all of them had a, a relationship with Britain. And in 1971, that relationship changed significantly. They essentially became independent of British control and, or any British control and influence. And so what we've seen in, in those territories, of course, is a really, a, a, a really intense engagement with motorsport, particularly Formula One. If alternatively you look at China, when I was a kid, China was hardcore communist country. You didn't go in and you didn't get out. Simple as that. But of course, with some of the economic, political and social reforms that we've seen in China over the last 30 years, it, it is now a, a, a market for motorsport. Sometimes it's been a difficult market. And, and obviously, over the last three years or so, because of COVID, it's, it's, it's not been staging races. But it's going to be back next year and there is an appetite for the sport. Obviously, there's a Chinese Formula One driver right now. So, you know, there's some of the changes that I've seen and, and, and they are they are sociocultural in terms of popularity. But I think they're also economic and political as well, because the world has changed and countries now have more resources, have reformed economically, are more open to the world. And this is reflected, I think, in global motorsport. Yes, for sure. And how has media changed the sport? Because it, it was seen as inherently European or motorsports divided, I feel, into a European or an American way with NASCAR, IndyCar, and then there's Formula One, which is European. But there's a bunch of European races that are seen as exclusive to, you know, Europe rather than American. So how has media changed that? Do you think TikTok or Netflix has contributed to that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I go back to 1978 when there was a there were a couple of IndyCar races staged in the UK. Um, nobody was interested. I, I, I remember, I think, you know, AJ, AJ Foyt and Al Unser racing at Silverstone in the in the rain in the autumn, and there was no engagement. And and it is you're right, it is interesting that I think for a long time 
the United States and Europe lived separate lives when it came to, to motorsport. And the United States obviously had IndyCar racing. It also had NASCAR and, uh, and obviously other versions of motorsport connected to, to, to the two of them. In Europe, it was very European. We did, we did have some South American drivers. There were one or two um, uh, American drivers. You know, think about Mario Andretti, for example, senior, not junior. So you know, there, there, there was some crossover, but European motorsport was was essentially by Europeans for Europeans, governed by Europeans, and so this was very much reflected, I think, in 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 media coverage, in broadcast coverage. I remember as a kid, the only time I ever got to see any American racing was there would be a, a, an edited highlights program of the Indy 500, and that would be it. You, you know, you'd see. In an entire year, you would see 30 minutes of, of, of American motor racing, keeping in mind, of course, as well, that when I was a kid, there was no Internet either. Um, so that was it. But of course, the, the Internet came and, and some of the, the some of the, 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 the liberalization of not just broadcasting markets, but I think markets more generally came. And so it opened up sport more generally but obviously motorsport more specifically to different audiences but i guess the big the big th breakthrough in terms of us engagement with motorsport there are lots of things again i remember you know, we, we're heading towards uh, las vegas grand prix and um i remember the uh, the first las vegas grand prix in 1982 when there were fewer than 30,000 people who watched and I remember a great quote from the mayor of Las Vegas at the time who said he didn't find it interesting because he'd seen Las Vegas kids driving around town on a Saturday night who were driving faster. So, you know, there was a kind of disdain there almost. Um, but Las Vegas is back and there are huge ambitions for it, allied to obviously the development of Formula One or the, the, the staging of the Formula One races in the United States and the interest we now see in Formula One, the engagement amongst particularly Gen Z audiences who have been exposed to Drive to Survive and, and, and the Netflixization of, of Formula One. And, and for anybody who has been to a Formula One event, keeping in mind that I've been watching Formula One events for 40 years or more, let's be brutally honest about it, is often they're pretty boring. And, and, and we can think about the Schumacher years or the Hamilton years where really not a lot happens. Just the guy in front drives his car very, very fast and wins and that's it. What we've seen, obviously, with, with, with over-the-top broadcasting, with, with the digitalization of, of uh, motorsport, you know, we include social media alongside that, is um, a commodity now that is suddenly or can be suddenly consumed in lots of different ways. And that enables you to package it in a certain way, to target it in a certain way, build a narrative that is more compelling and, and is and is much more in your face. It's kind of you know 24-7, 365, as opposed to watching Michael Schumacher just go round and round and round and round and then win. There is something about technology. I think there's something too, and and, and this this point about Schumacher, you know, of course we've gone from Schumacher years, where he goes round and round and round and wins, to the Verstappen years where he goes round and round and round and wins. But I think what's important about all of this too is the, is competition design and of course what we're now seeing is different formats it's not just about different broadcasting formats it's actually about different competition formats because of course we've got sprint racing as in, in in there too which we never used to have and who knows maybe in the future there will be a development of that sprint racing concept maybe we'll see different conceptions more generally of what a formula one race means because i think commercially 
just as Formula One is getting its act together after decades of not really getting its act together commercially. You know, Formula One is on the cusp of really getting its act together commercially. And the last thing it needs is for just for Stappen. There's his father in the same for Stappen going round and round and round and round, you know, they, because this will kill the attention of audiences. And so it's very, very important that uh, competition design plays a, plays a part in the is part of the equation alongside things like broadcasting technologies, for example. So you obviously believe that the lack of competition, you know, Max Verstappen just immediately always winning the race. Do you think that even though like we saw Sergio Perez and Fernando Alonso in the last race getting really close to each other fighting for P3. So do you think that will contribute at all to the popularity of the sport? Like maybe not the front man, but like, you know, the second, third place winners, do you think they will contribute to the popularity of the sport at all? I mean, obviously, I mean, I, don't, I, I say obviously, I, I guess first thing to say is, is given that I'm 900 years old, I'm giving you the perspective of a 900-year-old middle-class, middle-aged white man. So you know, I, I, I don't purport to represent the interests of everybody who engages with, with Formula One. But for me, the excitement of Formula One comes through, you know, if, you, if, you, if, if I go back to those battles, you know, this kind of Ayrton Senna, Senna, Alain Prost type battles where you know, anybody could win the race. And you know, the, these were... I think about Senna in particular, these were tire to tire battles that kept you kept you gripped from the first lap to the last. That's what I find engaging about the sport. But I do accept that other generations of, of motorsport consumer, they might want other things. And and so, you know, there's so, there, there is something really amazing about a top class professional athlete doing what what he or she does best in in the most accomplished way possible you know we, we think about all those great athletes in history it's just an amazing thing to see even when they're dominant but i think in terms of product management and in terms of competition design it's really important to understand you know what, what is it that really is going to appeal to the majority of audiences is it going to be that utter utter domination by somebody like verstappen or is it going to be this kind of tire to tire type battle that we saw in kind of the Prost Senna years. And, and I guess the only way we can know this is by engaging in research. And, and that poses a question is it itself is, should this be a sport that is driven by research or should this be a sport that is driven by people just driving cars very, very fast? And, 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 the, and the ones who do it best win and the ones who don't, don't. I and mean, obviously the, the, the interesting thing about cycles you know, having lived through a, you know, a Nicky Lauda cycle, having lived through an Alan Prost cycle and an Ayrton Senna cycle and a Lewis Hamilton cycle and now a, a, a Verstappen cycle, is cycles do end. That, that's inevitable. You know, it, there was even an Alonso cycle, going back to your, your Alonso observation. Those do end. But I guess the question is, is how long does do the cycles last and, and do the benefits outweigh the, the the costs of those dominant cycles and 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 that's where i think you know consumer driven research is important and competition design are important yes i completely agree and just going into like drivers specifically i mean sebastian vettel he's a former formula one legend and has since retired but continued to be around their vocal advocate for climate change. However, Formula One is a gas guzzling sport. It's that contributes a huge amount to greenhouse gas emissions. Do you believe that the climate report that the FIA has since 
given out has since reported. Do you think that this popularity of the sport is going to be at jeopardy? It is really interesting because I, for 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 most people across the world, I would think they would they, they probably look look at Formula One and think this is a polluting sport. And and for me personally, I I look at it and I think you're running out of time. You're running out of time. But it's interesting because there was some data earlier in the year, and, and perhaps this is what you're alluding to that only two, something like two percent of the of the carbon emissions from formula one are actually released from the cars the biggest carbon footprint comes from for example the race schedule and and the race schedule as we know is global now it's it's not concentrated in europe it is global and so what you have is teams moving from one part of the world and and so in in seeking to address some of the challenges the climate challenges that that poses formula one officials are now creating a calendar where races are clustered together so there's less travel involved at the same time um i'm sure people in formula one particularly the engineers would argue that you know we're part of part of the solution not part of the problem in the sense that a lot of the r d and technological developments that come out of the work that they're doing are going to have benefits environmental benefits from from their cars but for me i'm i'm not entirely convinced by these arguments i i still think this is you know, a predominantly polluting sport in an age when clearly there are growing numbers of people who are concerned about climate change, particularly the future fans of, of Formula One are people like you. They're, you're in your late teens and early 20s and you are looking ahead to when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and you're going to make a, make demands of how Formula One looks and, and, and what it involves and what it should and shouldn't be doing. And what I what I find interesting is the comparison that some people make between Formula One and Formula E. And and Formula E, as, as some of your listeners may know, became the first officially sanctioned UN carbon neutral sport. And Formula E does really interesting things, like, for example, it innovated on fast battery charging technology, for example. It conducts environmental audits of, of host cities to ensure that the energy that the, the 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 race series is using when they're in town comes from renewable energy sources. So I I, I think you know Formula E provides some interesting benchmarks and comparisons. I, one of the things I remember back to to when Formula E moved to its new generation of engines is that people didn't like the sound they were making because it wasn't a Formula One grunt. It was a different sound, and of course. When you when you listen to a Formula E car, you know people have made comments they sound like lawnmowers. People have made comments that they sound like hair dryers. So I suspect that somewhere in the middle of all of this, there is a there is a, a an, another alternative global motor racing series that that combines the best of Formula One with the best of Formula E. I don't know what that is. Maybe that will be forming the future of Formula One. Uh, maybe it will be the future of Formula E. Maybe it will be something completely different. But I think over the next five to ten years, we are going to see a very different kind of Formula One emerging from what we now have. And so we already mentioned Sebastian Vettel. So and there are a bunch of I mean, there's 20 drivers on the grid. And how does representation matter in terms of the political elements of the sport? I, I mean, like Lewis Hamilton, he's been very vocal 
in politics and like Black Lives Matter and same thing with Sebastian Vettel. How are drivers that take such provocative stances, what does it mean for their job? What does it mean for the sport? How does it change? How is it going to change motorsport when drivers, athletes are supposed to be taking these political strides and these big momentous opinions on things? I mean, if I could just say, I mean, as far as, as, as Vettel is concerned, um, he's doing important work. He's got a, an important voice and he could should continue to express his opinions. If I could focus on Lewis Hamilton, all I would say is just epic. What an epic guy. Mm-hmm. And and when Lewis Hamilton eventually retires from, from Formula One, we'll look back and think, wow, this guy was really, really important. Perhaps Perhaps more important than we ever imagined at the time. The British have got a, an unusual relationship with Hamilton because although he's British and, of course, the British love British world champions, why wouldn't they? He's never been particularly loved. But I think the work that he does is is immense. So he was he instigated his own motorsport commission. He is now actively seeking not just to, to, to promote the participation of, of, of women and of women of colour in, in driving cars, but also as engineers, as team principals, as sponsorship professionals. So I, I, I think that, that as an advocate of some very important issues and causes, you know, he's somebody that, that we'll, we'll, we, we, we need to, you know, we need to kind of mark out as being really, really important. What I found interesting about both of them, of course, is, is, is that in recent years, they have taken to protesting various causes, most notably, I think, Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ plus causes, which in my world, they're perfectly entitled to do because we, you know, we have freedom of speech. But of course, this juxtaposes, I think this juxtaposes with two things. It juxtaposes with some of the destinations for races. And I'm thinking you know, of countries like, for example, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, where it is illegal to be a, a, a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, it's illegal to be gay. But I think it's a, there's also a juxtaposition now because the president of the the FIA, the Global Governing Body of Motorsport, comes from one of those countries. And and what he has done is to issue an instruction to drivers that if you want to protest, you must ask the FIA first. And so these kind of spontaneous Kaepernick Hamilton-like protests, governing bodies have, have kicked back against that. They've kicked back against it because of their governance, then they've kicked back against it because of some of the markets that they're now racing in and 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 it is very very interesting about and i think this is very interesting in terms of what this means for the future of athlete protest if i can digress just a little if we think about israel and palestine and what that has meant for athlete protest it seems to me that we may well have lived through a very short sharp and very loud period of athlete activism but but we live in such a sensitive world. We live in such a fractious en- environment. But we also live in in you know we live alongside sports that are that are being delivered delivered in in multiple and conflicting territories. That it's 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 going to become more difficult, I think, for athletes to actually express their opinion in the way that Hamilton and Vettel were doing. Mm-hmm. And as this podcast is run by the School of International Relations and Diplomacy at Seton Hall, so. 
what role does international law play in facilitating these relationships to ensure smooth execution of events? So the combination of the FIA with states that might have conflicting political views. How does international law play into the sport? So we live in a world in which obviously there was a post-World War II settlement. We won. You know, the United States and and the West, in inverted commas, we won. And of course, then with the with the with the um, demise of, of communism in 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 the late eighties and early nineties, you know, we won. And so, the rule of law, the international rule of law, has been heavily influenced by people like us. And that in sport, I think, is is amplified because. The hegemony in 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 global sport is essentially European, Western, global North. If you look at the global headquarters of most um, global sports, like football, like the Olympics, like um, basketball, their headquarters are in Europe. The headquarters of the FIA is in Europe, and so for for. Effectively, a century, we decided. What's now happening is, as the the world pivots from the global north to the global south, we now have countries that are rising. They are accumulating power. The international environment, more generally, but specifically within sport, is more multipolar. So there are new power centres emerging, like Riyadh, where decision makers and, 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 and government officials feel emboldened to take particular positions. And, and we've all already begun to see how the governance of sport is being dismantled. So in the case of cricket, which, uh, and I guess most of the people who listen to this won't know cricket, but historically, cricket was governed by an organisation called the International Cricket Council based in, in Britain. Now it's in Dubai. So the International Cricket Council has its headquarters in Dubai. And, and so for this, for me, is illustrative of the challenges and the tensions and the changes that are now taking place in, in sports, in global sport, which the likes of those Gulf nations we've talked about, China, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, India, Russia, or maybe Nigeria, South Africa and others, you know, they're, they're all now beginning to challenge the kind of sport that people like us were born and brought up with and so what this means is you know could it be that in you know in 2050 the global governing headquarters of the FIA the, the governing body of world motorsport is in downtown Dubai for example you know there is that possibility I wouldn't discount that. So could you uh, discuss how countries utilize Formula One events for soft power and diplomatic purposes and like share any notable instances where the strategy has been particularly effective. Like I know that Qatar, for example, is trying to become known for their sporting and known for hosting the World Cup and now having a huge Formula One race there. Can you just explain how soft power and diplomacy fits into that? I guess the best example of, of, of soft power and diplomacy is actually not in the Gulf or for that matter in the global south. It's, it's in the global north. It's in Great Britain. So in Great Britain, we have 
an area called Motorsport Valley, where most of the Formula One teams are based, including the foreign ones. I think maybe with, with the exception of, of Ferrari and one or two others. But certainly Red Bull is there, Mercedes is there and, and, and many others. The motorsport economy in Britain sustains approximately 41,000 jobs in Britain. So the British government is always very keen to promote its, its motorsport credentials and project its soft power as, I guess, in terms of heritage. So if you if you if you know, and, and we think about great British racing teams and you know British Racing Green and James Bond and Aston Martin and you know, and you know McLaren and all and Williams and all of these teams. So the British government uses this. It uses this to project soft power because, of course, not just politically and diplomatically, but economically and socially, motorsport is is a is a major contributor to British British life, economic and otherwise. So I remember being in the district around Purdue University, which I think is not so far from Indianapolis. And I think in Indiana, I'm right in saying there are there are more motorsport teams in Indiana than any other state in the United States. And this is really important because it gives identity, it, it creates jobs, it sustains livelihoods, it gives people a reason to engage with with Indiana. You know, just as Formula One and Motorsport Valley gives a, a gives reasons for people to engage with Britain. My point in all of this being is there's a big competition taking place, and so the likes of Qatar want a piece of the action, and and for that matter, Saudi Arabia wants a piece of the action that Britain and that Indiana already have. Now, if we take Saudi Arabia as an example, Saudi Arabia is currently building a brand new Formula One circuit about 40 minutes outside Riyadh called Chidiya. And Chidiya will be notable because it will become the world's biggest sport city with the world's biggest sport university located there and also the F1 track based there. What I think is important about the F1 track being there, given that this is going to be the world's biggest sports city, is, is you'll get an industrial clustering effect. And so we, you, you will see the Saudi Arabian government encouraging sponsors and teams and drivers and R&D facilities and consultants and others to locate there. And I've made this prediction before and I'm going to make this prediction again is I think we will see in the end a motorsport industrial cluster at Chidiya and possibly even a Formula One team based there. That will be their new base. And if you think about it, you know, Britain to Singapore is a long way. If you're based in Saudi Arabia, in this new F1 calendar that we see, you know, it's, it's actually much closer. And playing to your point about sustainability, you know, it's easy to fly Saudi Arabia, Japan, fly Saudi Arabia, Singapore, uh, Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, than it is to fly Britain to these destinations. So, you know, there's, there's probably a, a sustainability sell in there, too. But this is absolutely a, a global competition. Lots of countries doing it. Saudi Arabia, especially distinctive. Some of it is is economic. Some of it is political because they want to persuade the world. They want to convince the world that they're just like us. So there are image and reputational benefits. Some of it is social because taking a country like Saudi Arabia, 70% of its population is aged under 35 years old. So it's a Gen Z population. And you talked about Gen Z earlier. You talked about Gen Z watching Netflix and the Netflixization of Formula One. Saudi Arabian Gen Z consumers want the same thing as US Gen Z consumers. And, and so, you know, I, I, Saudi Arabia, in terms of this soft power and diplomatic game, is playing the same game as we are, is trying to use what we have done 
and, and use our benchmarks, but is also looking to add value through, for example, creating this brand new circuit, you know, purpose built inside the world's biggest sports city. Alrighty, thank you, Professor Chadwick, for taking the time to sit down for an interview with The Global Current. It was so much fun to talk to you about your unique journey and your helpful insight in Formula One and a passion we both share, Formula One. Uh, the Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. To everyone that is listening right now, we are grateful at The Global Current for your support. Please follow us everywhere you are listening from. Until next time, I'm Juliana Mori, signing off.